You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Moore. I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Holly, how are you doing today? Hey, Robert. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing today? I'm good. I, I'm feeling a little bit guilty mm. because your phone alarm just went off telling you that it was time to go to bed. <laughs> and we, uh, you couldn't go to bed because we're recording. So. No, that's okay. But no, that's don't it. don't feel guilty. And yes, listeners, there you go. I have an alarm that goes off just before nine to remind me to start moving to go to sleep because otherwise I will stay up too late. So <laughs> there's just a free little tip for you. You can try that yourself. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. So how's um how's this week been going for you and Brooke and Gray? It's been going pretty well, about the same. It is interesting to kind of, uh, obviously I don't go like out and about tons of places, but mm-hmm. just if I do go out anywhere, um, just noticing since Georgia has opened back up, mm-hmm. um, the like pretty massive increase in people that are like out and about or like even the decrease in people that have masks on and stuff like that, which uh, is kind of this like cognitive, like it's very jarring for me, right? To say like, oh, this is kind of feels like we're totally fine, but like obviously knowing that things aren't quite that way or anything like that. And so it's very Mm -hmm. interesting kind of like as jarring as it was to see everything empty at one point, it's like I'm noticing that it's it's almost equally as jarring to say like, oh, there's people everywhere. That's really weird to me now. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally understand. I mean, I feel I feel like it was the same for us tonight driving past a – because Texas is starting to open as well um, slowly, but but we're starting to. And just seeing, seeing people inside of a restaurant tonight was like just – it was jarring. Yeah. It was like, what? What? Wait, I don't understand. What's, ha- what's happening? Yes, here? what's yeah. happening? What is happening right now? But you know, that's I don't know. It'll be interesting, kind of moving forward. Yeah. So I am also aware right now that you know this time of year, you know, like in the school of social work, we were starting to celebrate our upcoming graduates and getting ready for commencement. We're doing like a virtual commencement or convocation for the School of Social Work students. And I was thinking just a little bit ago, I wondered if you had one piece of advice or one like hope that you would have for graduates as they're kind of shifting from school to wherever they're going to be, whether it's like high school graduates or college graduates or grad school or like whatever you want to pick. Yeah, yeah. Um... I'm trying to think. Here's what I'm doing. I'm envisioning if I was giving a convocation speech, mm-hmm. which obviously I get invited to do quite often. I know. I was um, going to say it's like a daily thing for you. Yeah, I turn them down often. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know how my how my subtle sarcasm comes across in recordings, but mm-hmm. I think I would say that you don't have to have everything figured out right away. Mm. Um, I know that a lot of like college students that I interact with or just out of college, kind of the young adult, mm-hmm. like kind of, you know, young professional. A lot of people that I talk to in that range uh, do seem to have this sense of like existential crisis of, uh, you know, the road 
of life so far has been next grade, next grade, next grade, next grade, and then you graduate and get a job, and that's the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it very quickly becomes apparent that that is not the finish line. That then yeah. you get there, and that's kind of the starting point. And so uh, it tends to be like very disorienting. Like, oh, I, now what do I do? I sh- I'm supposed to have like everything figured out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say, you know, d- to hold that with some loose hands that you don't have to have it all figured out that this idea of, well, my parents have a house and jobs and all this, like that takes a long time to build up. I, I mean, like uh, me, probably you and I would both say like, we don't mm-hmm. feel like fully established yet, you know? And so mm-hmm. look, people switch jobs, I think an average of like seven times or something now it's okay. You don't, you know, it's not like find your one career and then you're done for life, you know, because mm-hmm. that, that puts a lot of pressure on kind of each step you take and each step is just a step. Yeah. If it helps, my undergrad was in music education. So that's amazing. I, I love know. that. No, that's good. That's really good. That's good advice. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? If you were giving a convocation speech, would you read, Oh, the places you'll go? <laughs> well, <laughs> a, that's one of my favorite books possibly. B, I am that parent who has my kids' teachers write a little something in that book each year. So interesting. Yeah, I don't know. But it's, yeah, it's actually kind of neat. This is a little offshoot, but it is kind of sweet. We've had each of Callie's teachers write a little bit on one of the pages since she started going to school. So that's been kind of fun. We're gonna have to figure out a way to do that with her current teacher. So we'll do Can that. Can I write a letter on the page that says, kid, you'll move mountains? Um, <laughs> That's the only line I remember from that book. <laughs> I, well, <laughs> I have no idea. Sure. Yes. Yes. You can write. You can write on that page. I'll save that Boom. just for you. I Be a sticky note just for Robert Moore. In mm-hmm. case you ever say you never said it. Yep. Well, although you can't see if I'm crossing my fingers right now or not. So there's that. But... I'm just playing. (laughs) You know what I love about this is the more that I joke around, the more work I create for myself during editing. So it's kind of like, you know, (laughs) it makes this part more fun. But then later on, I'm like, come on, Robert, get it together. You're like, no, no, you're fine. You're fine. So anyways, yeah, I, so there is a possibility that, oh, the places you'll go could come up. I don't know. There would most definitely be something attributed to Mr. Rogers that would come up in that. Mm. Probably somewhere in something that I would say would be just a reminder to each person um, just that they are beautifully designed exactly as they are. They are loved as they are. They each uniquely bring a particular gift to this world that no one else can offer and that I think their life's work is going to be to uncover what that particular gift is, Um, not to put pressure on them to find it right away because it might not be until well into their later years that they kind of identify what that thing is Um, Mm. and maybe they won't always know what that is. Maybe it's just, you know, I don't, I don't know, but I would say that if anything, their sheer presence, their presence in this world is the gift. And if there's something they can do with that presence in this world, then wonderful. But, but they are loved as they are. Their presence matters that I am so grateful for the healing work that each of those graduates will be doing within their own 
little sphere of influence and to just pay attention to whatever that next nudge is for them to do, um, because that's going to be the rest of their life is to be able to discern and listen to that nudge and, and to dis- to take that next step that's in alignment with that. And just knowing that, that they love, they're loved as they are. They don't have to do anything to earn that. Yeah. So that's what I would say. And hmm. probably attribute some quotes from Mr. Rogers. Cause I think he's taught me a lot of that to be honest. So, all right. So this week we have KJ Ramsey on. Do you want to tell our listeners about this episode? Yeah, so we actually didn't plan this, but it's interesting to have kind of two episodes on mm. suffering in a row. Obviously, last week, uh, if you're you know scrolling through your podcast app or whatever, we had the Van Tongrens on to talk about their book. Um, but so we actually recorded this before that, so the timing just kind of worked out this way. But we have KJ Ramsey on mm-hmm. to talk about her new book, This Too Shall Last, Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers, which comes out on May 12th. So that is right after this comes out, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And KJ is someone that you and I have interacted with for a while. Uh, I can never tell if I'm supposed to call people my friends if I've made friends with them (laughs) online, but Mm -hmm. uh, a friend of ours, you know? Yes, yes. um, Who's a therapist and an author and, and, you know, so kind of fits right within what what we do. And so this, I thought, I don't know, this book is, obviously we got to read it. I thought it was great. Yeah. We got to have, have her come on, so. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's always so funny when you connect with folks like, in Twitter or in social media spaces, but then, you know, when you're on that call with them and it's like, oh, this is fun. We actually, you know, get to hear one another's voices in real time and connect and talk about it. And I feel like especially in this conversation that that enjoyment with being able to actually connect and hear one another's voices and chat was pretty apparent. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I I just I love this conversation. I thought it was really good, super timely in light of everything continuing on with some of the content that we talked about last week. Um, the timing is pretty perfect. So yeah, well, we will go ahead and get into it. So folks can just hop right into that. Um, here is our interview with KJ Ramsey. Hi, enjoy y'all. Today, we are so excited to have KJ Ramsey with us. She is a licensed professional counselor, a writer, and a recovering idealist who believes sorrow and joy coexist. Her writing on the integration of theology, psychology, and spiritual formation has been published in places like Christianity Today, Relevant, The Huffington Post, and many more. She lives with her husband in Denver, Colorado, and she's also the author of the new book, This Too Shall Last, Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers, which releases on May 12th. KJ, how are you doing today? I am doing well today, which is so good to be able to say. Mm, <laughs> because as we, as we all know, it is very day by day, sometimes hour by hour right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Well, is there anything else that our audience should know about you before we talk a little bit about this book? Gosh, uh, no, I'm just glad glad to be here and... It'll be fun to see where this conversation goes. We'll let the we'll yeah. let the audience just discover as we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. You're someone that I have known, and we were just talking about this, right? Like mm-hmm. someone that in my mind I have known for a little while now, even though that's all kind of internet-based. Uh, and so it's been cool to kind of watch your platform and all that kind of shift and change. And so 
Mm-hmm. Can you tell us uh, some, just to kind of fill people in who aren't familiar with you, some about your story and maybe weave into that? Like what led you to write a book about suffering? Right. Yeah. Who would choose to write a book about suffering is really the question I think you're asking. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think like a lot of us, my story has included a lot of things that I would not have chosen. And some of those things include a autoimmune disease that's pretty severe that I've had for the last 11 years and also spiritual abuse and, and really a, abuse throughout throughout my lifetime. I've lived mm. in a pretty traumatic, chaotic household. And so I wrote This Too Shall Last because I realized that we need out of my own space of wordlessness about the parts of my story that I would not have chosen. I experienced God meeting me and really the word made flesh meeting me and showing Mm -hmm. me that God chose a story that I never would have chosen, a story of embodiment and of suffering and great love mixed in with all of it. And and I wanted to be able to offer words for our really wordless places, especially because I couldn't find words that that spoke to a story like mine mm. from its midpoint, not from the vantage point of having overcome it. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Well, and it's so honest and vulnerable, and I appreciate your willingness to to share that vulnerability and and authenticity with us. It's just so, yeah, it's just so important. But the way in which you just unpack that is beautiful. Mm, thank you. Well, I do. I think it's you know I appreciate you know your attention to suffering and and why we need to be thinking about this um, in particular. But I, I do also want to highlight that. It may be helpful to offer some shared definitions since these words, you know, especially like suffering can mean so many things to lots of different people. So when you talk about pain and suffering, can you unpack a little bit about what you mean by those terms? Yeah. So when I talk about pain, I'm talking about all of our different experiences of pain, from physical pain to emotional pain, spiritual, relational, uh, I I include them all in what I'm describing because pain of all types actually shares the same neurobiological pathways and is experienced in a physical in a physiological way. Uh, so and it's and it's experience has relational outcomes as well. It affects our relationships. It affects us holistically. So when I talk about suffering, I'm talking about the experience of how pain threatens our sense of personhood. We have the sense that we are becoming less than human when we experience pain and especially when the pain is ongoing. So it's that diminishment of self that I think is at the core of the experience of suffering. Oh, that's really yeah. good. That's a good explanation mm-hmm. of it. So you write about kind of thinking about pain and suffering the way you just described them, right? You write about kind of our current paradigm of our culture. Suffering uh, kind of almost inherently leads to shame in the way that we understand it. Can you talk some about like that kind of the way that we view these things currently? 
Definitely. So our culture is obsessed with success and progress. And so I think even if we don't, even if we don't adhere to or think that we believe in a prosperity gospel, it's in our bones, it's in our souls, it's in the way that we relate to our sense of self and to one another that we feel our effort and our striving really will produce blessing. And when all of our effort doesn't produce the story that we want, it tends to shatter our sense of self. And so when you encounter that shattering or when you encounter the the small moments in which you you aren't enough to produce the life that you want, that elicits the feeling of shame. You don't fit what your culture says is worthwhile and good. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that the experience of shame, the emotional, physiological experience of shame is, is really the, ex- the experience that we all are reckoning with every day, even when we're not in a place of prolonged, intense suffering. But that suffering actually prompts us to pay attention to it a little bit more and to and it invites us to reckon with it in a way that we normally are too hurried to do. So I think that's a so I'll start. I could talk forever probably about that, but no, I actually I'm gonna I, I'm gonna keep telling you, like keep going. This is really I love hearing you unpack this. And I mean it just resonates so much. So yeah. Yeah. Well we we have this pressure in our culture to produce and our sense of self tends to get tied up with with what we can produce and so we we tend to unconsciously see ourselves more as as products than people and when you can't produce when you can't mm. when you can't do much when when you're the loss in your life or the limits in your life make it so that mostly you can just exist and exist in some sadness, uh, Mm -hmm. you feel pretty bad about yourself. (laughs) Um, And that is usually more experienced unconsciously than consciously. Like usually we're not necessarily aware that we are not meeting the standard that we thought was good. Um, Usually it's, you know, the, the, the physiological experience of feeling like you need to hide your tears or um, put on a smile when you're in public, even though you don't actually feel good inside. Like, there's these yeah. just quiet moments of hiding how we're really doing because it doesn't match the standard of success that we see projected around us and that we've taken on as a mantle for ourselves to be good. Yeah. Gosh, that's good. You write at one point, I have some brackets that I wrote around it, but you say the unspoken story of Western culture is that suffering is a problem we can avoid or annihilate if we work hard enough. And then on the next page, I underlined part of a sentence where you said, we hide in hurry. And I think, especially right now, that's such an interesting, like reading yep. through this, 
right now was so interesting to me to say like clearly you've written these words long before right now but right now we're all kind of being faced with like oh I I cannot hide in hurry Mm -hmm. and so like what does that what does that say to me like how does that feel um and for a lot of people it's like really uncomfortable (laughs) yeah it is uncomfortable Yeah, it's been a little bit eerie to read passages like that, to reread them right now. Because I wrote that, I mean, that particular part, like, probably a year and a half ago. Most of the book was written about a year ago, or a little bit more. But yeah, it's, we right now, we really can't hide. And we can't hide, we can't hide in hurry, but we also can't hide from our grief. And we can't hide from the grief that all of the effort in the world couldn't have stopped this suffering from happening this like universal worldwide sweeping suffering none of our effort could have stopped this Mm. and that aches that aches yeah yeah it's hard to sit with that pain and that suffering and that especially when like just this idea that we can't hide in hurry when this is compulsively how we've been engaging in the world for so long it's really hard to make that shift and no I just think I I love I just (laughs) so good I'm curious for you two what Mm -hmm. have you what have you noticed during this season of not being able to hide and hurry like how what are you noticing in yourselves gosh yeah this is our show how I know (laughs) I can't help it therapist I I love it it. (laughs) the therapist is asking the therapy questions of the other therapist um (laughs) yeah well For what I'll say is I actually, I wrote a blog post for Steve Austin um, at the the very beginning of Lent saying that I was giving up busy for Lent. And that was obviously before all of this (laughs) happened. Yes. And so that's been beautifully poetic and heavy. Yeah. But I think the, so, so in some ways I feel like I, my heart was almost prepared in some ways or slowly being prepared for this. Mm -hmm. And I think the slowing down, the not like hiding in hurry for me has just opened this invitation for being able to just see what what I have been hiding Mm. in the first place. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what about you, Robert? Yeah, I think for me, so I've been kind of intentionally over the past maybe year or so uh, trying to slow a bunch of things down. Um, And I think what's been interesting is right now recognizing that even that version of slowed down was still not even Mm -hmm. close. Like it felt very slowed down to me. Like I was like, this is hard work. Like I'm like really trying to remove some things Uh and like create some space for just being, then this happens and we're all kind of like smushed into it. Right. And, Mm. and it points out how much that was still a slowed down version of like a very fast speed, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's been interesting of like, oh, that was just a toned down version of something that I knew was unhealthy, but there's like, there's way more ways to go. There's even more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. Suffering tends to do that. (laughs) Right. Oh man. It slows, Mm -hmm. it slows us down to like the pace that we wouldn't choose otherwise. Mm, That's good. Yeah. Cause, cause of course it's easier for us to keep going at the speed at which we've been going for so long. Yeah. It's it's good, but it does not feel good. Oh my goodness! No, oh no, it, <laughs> it does not feel good. I mean, even though, our, of course, I think you both write, and so you know this. Like the things that we write are the things that we deeply need ourselves. Yes. And 
So, you know, even though I write, I write about that hiding and hurry that happens, I as well experience having to be slowed down again and again in ways that I don't want to be. And in this season of quarantine and of book launch for me, which is a super intense time period for an author, uh, mm-hmm. my disease has been flaring really badly. Not not necessarily related to the stress of this. It's just it's been my treatment's been failing for a long time. Mm. And um, but it's it's forced me day by day to go a lot slower than I had planned for this season. And there's far less that I can do in this season because my body just can't keep up. And every it's like every day I have to and get to accept that and show up with what I the little bit that I have and then release at the end of the day all that I couldn't do. Um, And that's Mm. it's been a it's been painful on some days. It's super frustrating. And then other days it's been like a, a relief to say okay that was that was enough that was all I could do this isn't the success of my book the um the welfare of my clients like it's it's not entirely dependent on me and what I can do yeah yeah that's That's good good. I know so in thinking about that right obviously this book you write about okay if if that's kind of one paradigm where we all kind of unconsciously are to step out of that then if someone says oh i get it like i don't love that what what is your kind of offering for like what what's the difference like what do we step into then so i think it all comes down to inhabiting the present instead of being stuck in the past or trying to create some better future and you know work out the way that our present pain is going to be used someday and all of that i think the the invitation of the book and that is really the invitation of scripture too it's not really my story i just you know paid attention to it and how it worked out in my own life is to be present in our actual lives and in our mm. actual bodies in the stories that we really have as though God really is here and we really matter Mm. to pay attention to our lives, to let our pain be a prompt to pay attention to our lives and our bodies. Like we actually matter. That's good. I'm going to ask you to say that again. Say that one more time. Mm. Do you remember? (laughs) It was pay attention attention to the pain. Yeah. uh, In the way that it prompts you. Pain is, Pain is asking us to pay attention to our bodies and our stories like we actually matter. Gosh, that's so good. And so even going back, I don't want to keep going back to the hurry thing, but but we can, man, we can blow past that pain really fast and compulsively and constantly if right. we're not paying or just like, attention. Or we numb it. Right. That's right. So much, right? Yes. We want it because we, we want to push past it. Right. Because we don't want to feel it. Because we weren't made for pain. We were made for love. But we, we, you know, there's that paradox. You mm. can't experience the love without attending to your pain like it, like you really are a person who deserves love. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Well, 
at one point in the book too, I th- that I really want to you know highlight as well is that you write about how the fruit of the spirit is well integrated or is a well integrated prefrontal cortex. So assuming you know many of our listeners are um, kind of a mixture of faith leaders and mental health care providers and just folks who really care deeply about this intersection of faith and mental health. Um, assuming that most of them don't have a background in neuroscience, can you explain? what you mean by this, the sense that the fruit of the spirit is a well-integrated prefrontal cortex? Yeah. So I believe that God is always inviting us to wholeness and to being able to experience his presence and his love with us and the presence of one another. And the losses, limitations, stress, trauma in our lives physiologically disconnect us from ourselves. It it prompts the sensation of disintegration within our bodies and then within our relationships. So when we are feeling stress, we're feeling threatened, our body sends neurochemicals, brain sends neurochemicals throughout our bodies that, you know, really cause us to be in a state of fight, flight, freeze, or or fake. And we're, when we're in that state, we're not able to connect to our sense of self, to others, to God. And so when I talk about an integrated prefrontal cortex, pre, the prefrontal cortex is that part of ourselves that allows us to have a sense of self, that allows us to experience regulation, and that is involved with the social engagement system of our brain and body being turned on instead of shut off. And so the way that we experience getting to acknowledge our sense of self, have it be there, active, feel regulated, not overwhelmed by our emotions or our experiences is paradoxically not just telling us God, telling ourselves God loves us, not just telling ourselves the truth, but it's actually tending to the physiological sense of disruption that's going on and dysregulation. So it's paying attention to our bodies and what they're experiencing, the stress and sense of threat they're experiencing. Um, So does that help start Mm. explain? There's so much there, obviously, that I know you two know, but yeah. Well, yeah, we do, but, but not all of our listeners do. And so, you know, it's, it's okay. We have no problem, you know, giving the space for you to unpack it. So if there's anything else you want to add or... Well, no, I was going to say, I know, um, KJ, you and I have talked before about interpersonal neurobiology and all that type of stuff that we like really like, right? But to, to like slow it down, right? If say I'm in one of like, I notice, hey, I'm having this emotional reaction. What does that look like tangibly? Because someone's saying, oh, okay, cool. Like I want to have, you know, I want to be regulated and all that. But in the midst of a like emotionally activated state, that's super hard, right? So what does it look like in a hypothetical or if you have like a good example, what do we do with that uh, aside from like, that would be cool? Right. Yeah. So if I'm in a conversation with my spouse and he says something that sets me off. Okay. Here we go. This morning, we had morning prayer with our church um, that's streaming. Does it? We do it a couple times a week, uh, going through the Book of Common Prayer. And then there's a point where you can share during the prayers of the people, where you can share your prayer requests. And I have immunotherapy tomorrow, which I'm nervous about because it's the second time I will have gone in public in 
a little over a month and it's the therapy that keeps my immune system really compromised. Anyway, I'm a little nervous. You know, I have a mask, but it just stinks to have to go in public when I'm pretty vulnerable. And so I'm like, should I put the prayer request in there? I, I asked my husband and he's like, I don't know. Instantly, I notice I feel like I don't matter. I felt um, ashamed that I even asked, like, surely it doesn't matter. And what I noticed was, like, I just turned away from him. So the, like, first thing was noticing my body that I felt like the behavior was downcast face okay in that moment I could react and just be like do you even care about me do I even matter to you (laughs) or Mm. I could notice what's happening in my body and offer myself a pause so there's like great power in just in pausing instead of and so there's a choice here, you know, I could just continue to react and spiral a little bit and get more dysregulated emotionally and physically, or I can pause and I can take especially a deep breath or preferably more than one. <laughs> and that offers my body a way to feel soothed. And really what it does is I'm giving my body a way to experience that I do matter right where I am and that experience of even just breathing gives me my brain and my body a way to have the the neurochemicals sent and the processes happening within me that make it possible for me to then remember yeah I do matter I'm fine and my husband does mm. care about me and yes it is worth telling my church to pray for me because it is actually a big deal to go get treatment and so I did <laughs> ask them you know so it's that it's that experience of got to notice what's happening in your body and you get to pause You get to offer yourself one small physical way to soothe the stress. And that is what creates the possibility within you to experience that integration of your prefrontal cortex. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's good. That makes good sense. I'm glad it made sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, it totally does. I think the example and the, you know, linking it to like a, you know, like something that would happen in your day to day helps make it more tangible and accessible and understandable for, um, for our listeners. So I so appreciate how you unpack, you unpack that. Yeah. And I just want to say too, like, it doesn't, the, the part about immunotherapy, like it's, that's just because that's my life and my circumstances, but We have these, all of us have these moments in our days where something triggers a wound, something makes us feel like we don't matter or we're not seen or we're really forgotten by the people around us. We really don't have what it takes to tolerate the present moment. And it, your, your thing is going to be different than my thing, but the experience in your brain, your body is honestly the same. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, let me ask you this. So obviously a lot of what we've been talking about and of the book has to do with like speaking to an, an individual experience, right? But in in kind of the copy on the back of the book, I noticed that kind of the landing sentence at the end says, what if the church treated suffering like a story to tell rather than a secret to keep until it passes? Mm-hmm. Which A, I love, um, but B, are there, so like Holly mentioned, we have a lot of listeners who are faith leaders, either formally or just, hey, I am a, a person who engages in a faith community, right? Are there ways uh, or like shifts or changes that we can make from a community standpoint that helps kind of shift away from this, hey, we're all on board with the, the Western you know, culture and shift towards the understanding of suffering like a story instead of a secret? So many things. Yes. And I, I love that you're asking this. Because I think having these conversations is the place that it starts, that we we have to be willing to face that the stories that we tell in church and in our relationships within the body of Christ often are more about overcoming and self-sufficiency and I do X and it produces Y then about the actual gospel that God meets us in the center of our experiences of shame and loss. And it's there that he makes us new and whole, that there really is a weakness at the center of our stories, wherein and without which we could not experience God's strength. And I think being honest about the stories that we tell and the kind of stories that we make space for is imperative for us to recover the real story of the gospel. So number one, I think just having conversations like this and being frank is incredibly important. And with that, I guess, and I I love this question so much because it's just a deep personal, (laughs) it's just like such a personal passion of mine that we could make, that we could make space for the people, for it really it's to make space for all of us that like mm. we all have sadness and sorrow and we seem to have to leave it at the church's front door or we seem to have to hide it within our souls instead of sharing it with each other. So really this is about like recovering space for the whole people of God to be their whole selves. But yeah, I think an important thing is to listen to the stories of those who suffer and this has so many layers to it, but for for faith leaders, for for therapists, we we hate that this is true, but it remains true that we tend to treat pain like a problem to solve instead of a place to be present. Oh. And it requires intention to bear witness to someone's story as though it's something to by which you can understand and see the story of God, something that has inherent value and worth, not just something to fix. And so I think consciously, intentionally making space to hear people's stories and to so like it, there's, you know, making space on a big level, there's seeking people out to listen to their stories, but then there's just the, the super practical, like when you encounter someone in pain or when, when you hear someone comes to you who is suffering, who is struggling to 
remember to be present to them, that they don't need you to fix them. They need you to be present. And that's mm. the that's the reversal. Your posture towards them is actually the reversal that's going to make the story of God more tangible than if you could fix them. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's, that's all. It's so good. I, I was curious. I mean, I had a question kind of typed out in terms of, you know, Robert just asked this piece about churches and, and communities. And I was curious about, you know, you, you know, being a therapist, like if there are specific changes for mental health care providers to, uh, to be considering, and you already touched on a bunch of them right there, but I wanted to just create space if there was anything specific to mental health care providers that's different than what you just noted that you'd want to elevate or for them to consider. Yeah, I mean, we don't like to acknowledge it, but we as mental health care providers still do tend to treat problems like there's something that we need to solve and we forget the way that we are complex beings whose bodies are involved in every part of our pain and I don't think we pay enough attention to our own bodies and the way that Mm. we are being impacted by the stories in front of us by the people in front of us So I think the invitation for mental health care practitioners is that what people need is our presence more than anything. Mm -hmm. And by our presence, we tell the people sitting in front of us that their whole person matters. But we can't be present if we aren't paying attention to our own pain and our own bodies. And so there's an invitation here to pay better attention to be checking in with where we are. And I know it's the simple stuff that we all kind of know, but I don't know that we remember to practice it because, again, we go back to hurry, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've got the next session. We've got the notes to fill out. You know, there's so many things that keep us from being present and remembering our physicality. We need to slow down. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. It's one of my uh, one of my favorite things. Obviously, like there's plenty of on both sides to say about the medical model of uh, mental health treatment, but I do one thing that I I have said often to myself and to other people in you know supervision or anything like that is like, hey, even if I don't know what to do here, at the very least, I can have a like a a good present conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And it it's always hopeful to me and helpful that the like two things that are most predictive of client outcomes are the client's willingness to work and then the relationship. Right. Like that, like the fact that I can say, okay, I can build this relationship even if I don't, you know, right off the top of my head, know 16 great tips and tricks for treating this type of, you know, like I can always lean back on that because that is the most important thing that I can do is like do that aspect, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. That's good. Well, KJ, um, one of the things that we always love to ask our authors when they come on the show is we recognize that you have poured so much of your heart and soul into this book and you have done so much work to write it. And as you were talking about, like the launch includes a ton of work too, and just all the layers to this. So I'm curious, what would you say is your hope for this book as it is launched out into the world? 
My hope for this book is that it would spark curiosity and compassion in readers, that they would be curious about their story, be curious about their body, that they would turn toward themselves with a little bit of compassion that maybe their story and their pain matter. So much so that they would feel and engage a rising courage to actually live in their life like it's a good place. That's that's what mm. I hope. I hope that it sparks that, even just in a small way. I love that. Hey, if you want to connect with KJ, you can find her at kjramsey.com or across social media at, at kjramseywrites. Or you can buy or you can pre-order this book. Well, I don't know when this episode comes out. Either you can pre-order it or you can order it. Uh, whichever this book this too shall last finding grace when suffering lingers wherever you get your books if you want to connect with holly you can find her at hollyoxhandler.com or on across social media at hollyoxhandler if you want to connect with me you can find me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robert vore kj thank you so much for coming on yeah. the show do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners today hmm well, thank you for having me, listeners. Thank you for listening. Mm. And I I hope that you will pay attention to your life today as a place that God really is present, even if you don't feel that that's true, that you would turn toward your life and toward yourself with expectancy to discover that that might actually be true. That's my hope for you today. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com.